Hi, everyone. Happy to be back on our 2022 podcast series on Contingent Workforce Radio brought to you by Utmost, the VMS transformed, enabling your full talent supply chain in one global network. My name is Erica Novak. I'm head of client services here. And today's podcast features Ashley Wilson, Contingent Workforce Program Manager at Splunk. And we're going to be talking about onboarding key talent and how to create a positive experience for both your employees and contractors, which is true to my heart, the idea of key talent, bringing them on in a similar experience. But before we get started, Ashley, I'd love you to introduce yourself to the audience and listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Perfect. Thanks, Erica. Hi, listeners. Ashley Wilson, Contingent Workforce Program Manager at Splunk. I'm glad to be here today, and I hope that Erica and I can deliver some interesting conversation for you. So about my background, I have been in contingent workforce in various seats for a while. I started off in the aerospace engineering industry. I was working for an India-based project engineering company that provided value engineering for commercial aircraft, so incredibly specific and That's how I got my knowledge of statement of work and understanding a little bit more about the contracting world. From there, I moved into a managed service provider, worked with various tech clients. I think it's important to note, and I'll note it here, that I was supported by the procurement industry, procurement side of the house in both of those accounts. I think no matter where you partner cross-functionally with your company, where your program sits in the company really helps to influence how it is that you shape that direction of your program. So that's why I figured I'd comment on that. Since then, I've managed global contingent workforce programs in the ad tech and cybersecurity space, again, in procurement on the sourcing team, as well as in talent operations, spanning through the Americas, EMEA, APAC, And today I am with Splunk, another tech company in the Bay Area. Splunk has a global contingent workforce program. We have a VMS and MSP that help us to manage the extended workforce. And I sit in the talent operations team and we call our program People Plus. I love it. And we've had Keisha Stevens on here before. She was one of the first funds to do a podcast. I love that she's encouraged you. And I think we talked about like the people plus. I love that name like that. Right. It it shows integrity. It is about the people ops, but a little bit different. So that's fantastic. Can you share just for those who may have missed that podcast, share a little bit more about what your program looks like today at Splunk? I imagine it's changed over the last kind of 18 months. It has. So the program, I guess, kind of took off running in the middle of this pandemic. So very young. And just recently in November 2021, expanded outside of the US and is now in the UK, Australia, Canada, and supporting payroll almost everywhere globally that we have the need. Okay. This is what I like, international onboarding. There's a ton of differences to kind of carve out, like how do you actually have impact that in those different countries? But let's start with knowing that onboarding has changed. I think about kind of pre-COVID, through COVID. Am I allowed to say we're post-COVID? COVID plus, I'm not sure. Can you, all right. Can you talk a little about your guys' high growth environment and what's changed and how you guys are looking at talent holistically? 
So I think what's changed is, especially in the U.S., there feels like a gigantic shift in the workforce and that COVID brought everybody to the realization that maybe I'm not doing what I really am dying to be doing and I don't have all the time in the world. And I think it really brought those points home to people, no matter where they sat in the workforce. And people evaluated whether or not they wanted to work for the company that they were within. And there we go with their great resignation. And then with the great resignation, it's sort of turned the industry as a whole, the workforce as a whole, to thinking about, is my employer doing enough for me? Instead of, you know, the worker being the one who has to just suffer with whatever it is their employer decides they're lucky to have a job. And all of a sudden it's, well, no, you're lucky that I want to work for your company. And so with the sort of change of power that we saw there, I think employers as a whole started to reconsider what it was like to work for them, what their benefits were, how to retain their talent, how to attract new talent now that they had these major gaps to fill and their headcount needs were rising and rising. And that's the biggest shift that I've seen. And that's what I think, if we are truly telling ourselves that we're post-pandemic, I think will maybe stay with us a little bit longer and you know, a complete change of tides for the U.S. workforce, at least. No, I definitely agree with you. Onboarding, orientation, a lot of these things happened when, as people came into the office, right? And you're mm-hmm. exactly right. People had to dramatically rethink how they were going to do this for remote and could people pay attention and did they have access? And it's interesting because when you think about who's allowed to see what, how are they productive? How do I keep them engaged at what point in time? It's been in a great way you were able to see that it's now opened up, not just employees. So if you have an onboarded team, that's really where they start. Usually the CWPM, like yourself, is the one knocking on the door and saying, hey, what else? So I love to hear, knowing that people define onboarding pre-hire requisitions a little bit differently. Let's set a baseline. When you're talking about onboarding, what activities and what outcomes are you talking about? So when I talk about onboarding, I'm thinking of what is the experience for the individual who's going to begin working for us from the point of their first scheduled interview to them being notified that they're going to be getting an offer, receiving the offer, going through new hire paperwork, having their first day, having their first 30, 90 days. And then overall, what is the feeling for them versus, and for them, I mean, as a contingent worker versus an employee and what are the differences and really exploring that and why are those differences there? That's great because you're connecting the dots, right? What I'm hearing you say is it's not a pre and post, it's a a linear thing of it's your talent experience as they're engaging with your company from that first, like you said, like you're interviewing them to how they're doing afterwards. That's great. And I think that's important for our listeners to keep in mind that Ashley's focusing on the interview process and how they're coming up to you and saying, I'm continually engaged and interested in this position through meeting all requirements to the post. So you're saying the whole timeline, which is fantastic. When you think about how you guys are building it at Splunk, whether it's in place today or where your future state going, what teams are you working with? How are you putting this in place today? Well, that's just it. It's 
historically probably been very siloed in their process end-to-end is considered by their contingent workforce program manager who may or may not be 100% of an employee. You know, it might be so small that there isn't a fully dedicated resource. In my world, I am the resource. I have a small team. But what I think is really critical is not just staying within our silo, but reaching out because there's this massive team who belongs to our employee group and who recruits and does all these efforts on the other side. And my goal is to learn from their experience, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and see what we can do to make the experience feel the same on both sides, you know, in the good areas, and then learn from them and interact with them and and remind them that there's this external workforce, these people plus, that could potentially one day be converted and be employees. And so why have it be so different? Why stay so outside of our silos together? And breaking those bridges down, and whether you're in procurement or talent operations, I think it's really important to consider what is the employee's experience? What is the contingent worker's experience? And how can we make them positive and similar in areas that are not of risk in any way, you know, compliance concerns or anything like that? I think that's huge because I think people trip up, say, ah, can it be the same? Should it be the same? And they're missing the point. Right. Then because the same gets into like the co-employment stuff. But what I hear you saying is it's about the positivity around their engagement, their productivity and probably their loyalty. Right. Like, shouldn't it feel great to join your company in any way? How do you mirror that excitement, whether it's employee or contractor, not give them the same as an employee? Right. So can you expand a little bit more about when you think about that positivity, share a little bit more. So if you look at just your interviewing process, we have a really structured interview process in that we know how many interviews to give for each role. We know who our interview panel will be made up of. We have a scheduling system for all of those interviews and all of our calendars are coordinated, et cetera. And when we look at what we do on the contingent worker side, we don't necessarily offer those same guidelines, but the position is exactly the same as what we have on the employee side. And the worker may one day, like I said, be converted and become an employee in that same capacity. So I think it's really important to look at that and say, did we give all of this recommendation to hire an employee, but not to hire a contingent worker, but they're just as valuable to us at the end of the day. And in addition to that, did we train all of our hiring managers on the employee side and help them to understand unconscious bias training and hiring practices? Have they gone through that? Have they applied that to the other side of the house where it's equally as important? We're still talking about a workforce and we're still talking about um, what does diversity look like in our total talent ecosystem, if you will. And so I think pulling some of those ideas to the other side and really taking a more holistic look is missing historically and something that I think is so important as we go into the future. 
And that's really interesting because when you think, especially for our procurement friends, right? So I think you're under the HR kind of talent acquisition group where you actually are going to where those things exist on the employee side. I think for folks who are on the procurement side and less close to the employee hiring, this may be new of even hearing this is things that their recruiters or HRBPs are training their teams on. And so I think calling out the recognition of being aware of what's being done on the employee side and then picking what makes sense to have on the non-employee side is a really good recommendation. Let me play devil's advocate. There's no wrong or right in this. So I've heard people say, well, shouldn't it be shorter and faster? I want to interview these contractors quicker than I own employees. That's one of the reasons I started to do a contractor. I don't want to jump through their words, not mine, jump through the same hoops. I don't have to do as many things. I want to get them in and fast. And if they perform, then I'll convert them versus having to do all that. What are your thoughts on folks who want to slick down the contractor process versus keep it as heavy and robust as the employee? Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, generally speaking, it's much easier to bring on that kind of talent than it is to get that headcount approval for that extra person. And that's what we see a lot of the time. And that becomes part of your evaluation as well. Why are you bringing on this talent? Is it because you don't have headcount? Is your headcount going to open in three quarters from now? And that's a consideration because we're not always using these job openings correctly. And so making that assessment is a really good thing from the get-go. How long are you going to need this person? Infinitely? You know, so considering what it is that you're hiring for in the longevity of that person's time at your company. And I think the, the reality is for whoever that manager is that wants this, you know, condensed process, like make this easy. It's just a contractor. That's my problem with this entire conversation is that, At the end of the day, whether you're procurement or not, procurement, maybe more so than anybody, needs to remember, you are buying a person. This is a person. At the end of the day, treat them like a person. I had this conversation recently, and I don't even remember with who, but the conversation was, don't use the word temps anymore. Temps is a dirty word. Kelly Services had temps in the 80s and 90s and were done that's over. We've moved on. It is politically incorrect to call someone a temp because of the derogatory nature of being a temp, because people were treated like second rate employees. And so we use contingent worker now. And on this topic, as I was talking to whoever it was, we came up with more and it was really exciting. And I thought, oh, let's rewrite like maybe an entire Webster's Dictionary for Contingent Workforce and come up with some better terms that are more PC. But that's kind of my point is I think we need to stop looking at it in that way and consider that this is still a part of our talent ecosystem and we still are representing our company as we hire for these roles. And the person who has an experience with us, whether it's a supplier or an individual, a a 1099, an employee, it is still an experience to be had and let's make it as good as we possibly can. And especially now where the employees of the world have the upper hand. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like I think, forget, oh, I forget his name. I think Larry McAllister, who used to run TA for NetApp, working with an amazing woman named Jamali. I just did one of his seminars or webinars and he was like, the war on talent is over. Talent has won, right? Like we just, everyone needs to be on that 
right? High talent has one. They're going to go with the best user experience, the best onboarding. And to think about it in that way, and you're exactly right. I think COVID has accelerated where because more people are remote and can't come in, right? It actually has helped level the playing field a little bit because the things and strategies that could be used for employees are now much more easily used and readily available for contractors or rule-based work to be able to leverage. So talk to me a little bit. If you could wave a magic wand, if you think about creating an onboarding experience that values talent, regardless of classification, what would that look like? So I think what it would look like is having some orientation that includes both sides. So from both sides, I mean employees and those contingent workers on their first week of work. There are definitely some areas of your company that you want to have both groups in an orientation. And if they're going to end up working together on the same team side by side and potentially doing the same role, why is it that we couldn't have them in the same orientations? I'm not talking about benefits, but maybe it's welcome to the company. Here's who we are. Here's what we do. Here's what our fiscal year looks like because they're not all the same. Here's some important information that you're going to need to know, like how to navigate talking to one another and interacting and just going over tools together. From there, you know, maybe throughout your week, you have a few more check-ins and creating sort of a community where they know one another and they can use a buddy system together just from that orientation group, not separating them so that the people with the uglier colored badge get to sit in on this one. And then, you know, so removing those lines of separation as much as possible while still being conscious of we're not going to talk about our benefits in this meeting, right? We're not going to talk about these great perks that we get that we're not going to share or, you know, things that are just not relevant that you don't need to learn about. But there are plenty of trainings that you can offer that do make sense on both sides and are going to help each in their role supporting the company. And for those who are doubting us right now, I've seen this happen. They do the first two hours of the welcome, the vision, how to get started, how to be productive. Two hours, they take a break. Usually everyone gets laptop. This is back when people were in-person versus remote. And then the contractors are done. And then the next session ends up being, all right, let's talk about benefits, comp, equity, or whatnot. So usually it's logistical. And then again, working with your stakeholders is saying, hey, could we do this in this way? Like, it's very possible it's happening now. This is not a crazy assertion that she has. Again, it's about logistics, outcome, and planning with your kind of your core stakeholders. So I think that makes a lot of sense. What about after they started? So again, wave a magic wand. They've now been onboarded. They're feeling excited. Hey, I understand like what my company does, how they make their money what their CEO is like, how to be productive. I'm using Slack versus team. I have a PC versus a Mac. What about after day one? When you think about a positive experience that's similar to what you'd expect from employee contractor side, what happens then? So I think there are some other things that we also can include contractors in that we might forget about. Um, Those things are perhaps we have a team meeting and we exclude contractors from them and that team meeting might happen regularly. Is there any way that we can maybe every other team meeting ensure that they are joining and they're part of the team or ensure that we have content that they can join for for partial of those meetings and then anything that's not relevant, you know, do later on. So I think it's evaluating where you can fold them in to the team 
because more often than not, things are very relevant to them that come up in these meetings. And so it's being more thoughtful about what content you're putting forward. Is it appropriate to share with everybody or not? And is it possible to separate out something that's not appropriate and just do something for that group separately? Um, And I think really thinking about their experience, have you had 14 meetings without them? And if you have, what are you doing to include them in your greater group? I mean, is there something that you can do? Is there a happy hour that you might consider inviting them to, which today looks like add them to a Zoom call on a Friday, please. I think we can do that, guys. But things like that, as well as when we consider we have employee resource groups. And I know this one is far out. It's really hard for legal to have this conversation with me, but what if we remove the name employee, call them resource groups. These are usually our diversity-based groups within our company. If you have them, you know what I'm talking about. It's anything from all of your veterans at your company joining, and it's all the veterans coming together maybe every quarter Maybe they have their own Slack channel or something like that, where everybody gets to bring up topics that might be of interest. But shared interest groups, all of a sudden, allow your contingent workers to join your shared interest group. They work for a staffing agency that you asked them to employ. Their staffing agency is no fun. I don't care who you are, guys. I love you. But you're not doing an employee resource group, and that is the truth, okay? And we are, and we are the cool company that you want to be working for. And we want you to join, whether it's a fireside chat, talking about a topical, you know, thing for the company, whether it's you're participating in, we're going to make pho. Our Asian American Pacific Islander group has decided to make homemade pho and we're doing it on our Zoom. You can join at lunchtime. Is there a reason in all honesty why we couldn't invite them to that? I mean, I think that it's sort of just being a little bit more mindful in what we set up and who we include. And again, comes back to this is our entire workforce. They are no different than everybody else. If you look at it that way, they are doing work on our behalf. They are critical to us getting things completed. And instead of treating them like an outcast, let's think of more ways to bring them in. The hardest part, like I mentioned, is legal in this conversation and legal from the perspective of, I want to be mindful that these aren't our employees. And that's the truth. But we're also not talking about Kelly services. Sorry, Kelly. You know, we're not, we're not talking about temps back in the eighties. We have evolved and I think it's fair to allow this to evolve as well. Yeah. And it goes back to what you kind of said, like, what's in a name, right? Employee resource group, ERGs. It's an old name. It's like a 20 year old name that we've just kind of like continued to move on. And usually it's because HR is responsible for employees. So they just, oh yeah, this is what we name and you move forward. And that's what people get hang up, hung up on, right? Because it has employee, it's in the name. You shouldn't do this. Most of the time, and again, we are not attorneys. We are not giving you guys legal advice. <laughs> this is an There's no legal advice. But most of the time what I see is it's logistically, operationally, because it's hard, because usually it's like sign up with your email 
and whatever. And usually it's federated across companies, right? Whoever owns, like you said, the Latin America group versus Hispanic group versus LGBTQ plus group versus because it's kind of grassroots effort of who's doing the operations and mechanics aren't great. So they recognize that one is not doing the same as the other because they're not using the technology to help make this easy. It's usually Mm -hmm. Google form, use your name, go on Slack that they say it's going to be all on or all off. Right. And again, in legal, it's all on or off because it's safer, quote unquote, to turn it off versus have it be, uh oh, because maybe this group does something different than the other group, then someone could say, you know, foul play and they don't want to deal with it. But going back to your point of if things are named differently and if different teams are using technology to help them operate at this level. So when a contract is ended, does it term? Can it only mm-hmm. be on an, an email, a company email versus personal email to make sure, hey, if that's termed and this is termed off as well. Would that change the rules? So how like can you use technology and modern, like you said, inclusivity right, to actually yeah. help encourage to change some of the things? And it doesn't have to be all at once. But thinking about that, like you said, there's no longer the low skilled temps. These are highly valued skills who have integrity and want to feel some form of belonging because you typically do better work and are more productive if you feel like what you say and who you are matters. That is a great point. Yes, and exactly. It comes back to how are you treating your personnel? These are your personnel as well, even though we are sharing their employment, their productivity and their level of pride in their work, et cetera. I mean, it goes on and on. Is just going to benefit from this. Yeah. There was another person we brought on who talked about the importance of onboarding. And I scream it from the, from the mountains and was talking about usually class action lawsuits come from unhappy campers who felt like they were disjointed or devalued, right? Usually you don't join something if you feel like you had a great experience or personal connection. And actually this is a, a different form of risk mitigation because if people had a good experience and they leave, they're less likely to sue you or join right. something, right? They say, nah, I remember Ashley and Erica. This was a great experience. I disagree with X, Y, and Z. And so actually like, again, like the valuing of talent regardless of what classification is, can actually be a form of risk mitigation. I love that. <laughs> You brought up ERGs and a lot of ERGs are focused kind of on diversity and the idea that just inclusive, right? Like, Hey, we support however you identify and or groups or where you're from. And if you want to form mm-hmm. groups that are focused on this versus just teams, right? I'm working on product team or sales team. Can you share a little bit about how you guys are thinking about diversity metrics, whether it's throughout your onboarding experience about making sure they're capturing on the contractors as well? Yes. So this is something that we have just begun doing. I'm really excited about where it's going to go. So we do capture opt-in diversity metrics for our contingent workforce at the point of their onboarding. And so it's very similar to what we go through when we join a new company as far as, you know, do you want to self-disclose and self-identify. And if you do, great. If you don't, you know, we just capture that as a, we don't know. So I think what's really great about that is being able to take a look at it from a perspective of, I think historically procurement has always been interested in what are our supplier diversity metrics. We have always been as companies 
interested in? What are employee diversity metrics? And then there's this other, this other. And so all of a sudden getting interested in what other is really kind of brings you full circle if you think about it from that perspective. So being able to share that, I think at some point might be as we see companies evolve from having maybe 40% of their workforce as contingent labor into higher and higher numbers. And all of a sudden, maybe we see, you know, 30% of the workforce are employees and the rest are all these different ways that becomes really front and center. And so there could be a point, and I'm saying a few years from now, where we all of a sudden want to make that information public. I think supplier diversity has become really a topic of interest in the last 10 years and supplier diversity metrics have been publicized and more and more recently. And those numbers are atrocious and they're starting to look better and better slowly. But I think that perhaps this other bucket becomes identified as, whoa, this is a major part of the workforce and nobody has ever talked about what these metrics look like. And so bringing that to light, I have a feeling that even just in our company, when we do that, everybody's just going to fall all over themselves and say, wow, look at this. It's either really great or all of a sudden it's a topic of interest. Let's compare it to our employee population and let's have fun with that for a little while. And so it just becomes another data point for us to think of when we consider, are we really a diverse company? Are we meeting our goals? What do they look like? Why are they better here or there? And starting to dig into that. Now, a lot of companies, and again, I'm encouraged because so many companies are starting to think about how do I do this, right? Before it had been very, no, we only do this for employees. And there were some risk reasons around that. And there's this operational, right? And when we think about where this industry has come from, the suppliers just say, nope, I'm not going to give this to you. Oh, I can't. It's so hard. And now through technology, it's a little bit easier to request from the individual. Would you like to disclose? And here's what I'm doing. Again, Utmost is a big proponent of that within our worker app of talking about at any point in time, they can disclose or retract, but it's their information. But one of the things I've heard people say is I can't get people to agree on this and how it works. I'd love to hear from your point of view, if you guys are moving forward, who did you work with on this to say diversity across all the classifications are important? And how did you get that, whether it was approved or everyone aligned? And then how do you operate? So what teams did you work with? So employment legal, for one, who were proponents. Our diversity officer who sits in talent acquisition, so part of talent, part of HR. And then we, as far as operationalizing this, worked with our VMS and our MSP partners in order to make sure that our software could support what it was we're looking to do. Our suppliers were also informed, you know, this is going to occur. We're going to ask these questions. They're part of it as well. And I think it sort of was a no shock there to them, you know, we're like, oh, okay. You know, so we didn't feel a lot of pushback, which I think is just a sign of where we are today. And that's huge. And the reason I wanted to kind of call those out is for those in the HR world, I think we're used to hearing this, especially in the last five years, especially in the last five years, if not seven, right? It's in our staff meetings and it's in our HRTA, all hands or whatnot. But on the procurement side, it's not always. Sometimes on like the supplier onboarding, it's brought up, but much more of like a diversity checkmark versus. And so making sure the procurement folks understand, hey, what are the roles and titles I should be looking up in my intranet? 
who can I ask for to come across the table? Because it is across the table type of thing of why it's important on both sides. So I think that's incredibly helpful. And the good news is it's very similar to the people you had called out on the onboarding, right? How do you onboarding? Very similar team members. So two different problems similar team, so good relationship building. And then again, they're going to introduce you to the other people who's responsible for some of the operations or so, but like reaching across the table, making sure, yeah, I'm a big believer, CWs are the nucleus that pull, you guys can't see me, but I'm pulling people across <laughs> the imaginary web of bringing them into the CW world and having them have conversations. One last question, we're running out of time, but knowing that we're talking about and trying to encourage our listeners on how to create a positive experience for both sides of that talent coin. What's one or two pieces of advice that you want to make sure our listeners take away on what they can do differently or continue on in trying to figure out how to have a great onboarding experience? So I think if you are in procurement and that is where you lie, you have almost an uphill battle in this, in that you're not as exposed to talent acquisition and that entire process. To me, it's almost best if you've been able to jump around because you can see the best of both sides, right? But I think if you are in procurement, it takes continuous learning on your part. It takes you having the initiative and the interest to consider what that might be. It takes you looking inward a little bit and saying, what was my experience like? Now, what if I had been a contractor? What could that have been like? If you've never been a contractor, then that's really hard. So ask one, you know, get some feedback, do some internal stakeholder meetings and ask if you can, you know, maybe interview on all sides and try to get a better understanding. And once you do that, I think you start to understand what your company can do better and process-wise, what is the user experience? And that's really what we're talking about here. Yeah, that's so good. Ashley, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope to see you at CWS in a couple months. I feel like it's going to be a very big party welcoming everyone back. <laughs> so I think everyone's going to be thrilled to see each other. So let's definitely meet up again. Thank you for your time. This is such an important topic and we'd love to have you back. Awesome. Thank you so much, Erica. It was great to have a conversation with you on this.